This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Hood. We here at the Word of the Week recently found ourselves reflecting on how dressing up your fantasy Dungeons and Dragons characters has changed over the years. If you open up the Player's Handbook today or the Pathfinder Core Rulebook, you'll find that outfitting your character is as easy as selecting an outfit. Just pick an overall appearance, explorer, scholar, priest, whatever, and there's a set of clothes available. What do they look like? Who cares? It doesn't matter because you're going to draw and imagine your character however you want anyway. And really, does it matter what your character is wearing? Of course it does, is what we'd be saying if we were willing to lie just to get a good introduction for one of these episodes. Because the truth is... It doesn't. See, the earlier editions of D&D required you to actually buy each article of clothing your peasant hero was wearing, and the growing number of options eventually reached crazy pants proportions. Take, for example, the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition Arms and Equipment Guide. It offered five pages of clothing items for you to shop through, including braids and hose and slops and doublets and fidgets and snoots, and lyra pipes and tunics, which could be made of brocade or brocatelle or camlet or fur or leather, and included an entire section of the different styles of dress, and even discussed the sumptuary laws that restricted clothing styles and even colors to certain classes. Those were real things. They existed across Europe from 1300 to 1700 CE in various forms, and are the source of numerous fun facts for YouTube creators to share like Once upon a time, it was illegal for non-royalty to wear the color purple. Or, commoners caught wearing fur other than otter, fox, beaver, lamb, goat, or wolf could be subject to punishments including hard labor, whipping, and imprisonment. Note, though, that the sumptuary laws partially existed to maintain social order and hierarchy, and partially to restrict the import of foreign goods and some also claimed they were there to help curb excess spending and keep lesser nobles from running up too much debt and becoming criminals. No, really. Elizabeth I of England in 1574 specifically defended the sumptuary laws of that country by pointing out that there was a big problem with the nobility trying to outspend each other on fashion, and the younger nobles were blowing their inheritances, ending up bankrupt and turning to banditry. But we digress. Here's the truth that we're forced to admit right now as we go into December and we're getting ready for the holidays. Shopping just isn't that much fun. Especially clothes shopping. Especially clothes shopping for a fictional peasant hero when you have to carefully read the description of each item because you don't know the difference between your braids and your breeches and your pantaloons. And especially when the punishment for getting it wrong is an imaginary flogging. Yeah. The Arms and Equipment Guide actually suggests GMs might want to add some fun authenticity to the game by springing surprise sumptuary laws on the heroes when they arrive in a new town and unknowingly violate the law against not wearing a flat woolen cap on a Sunday. Fun! The problem is... As lovers of knowledge and lovers of words, we actually kind of enjoyed those sorts of supplements that took the time to present a somewhat authentic Middle Ages experience. That specific book was a great source of information about what the various clothes were really like, 
and where and when they were invented, what musical instruments bards from different cultures west and east might play, and, of course, what the well-dressed peasant hero was wearing these days. So, in that spirit, and in the spirit of the drudgery of holiday shopping, we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about some of the options your hero might find in their wardrobe. And today, we're going to start with something simple. Something which forms the very backbone of many modern fantasy adventures, and something that has nothing to do with beleaguered peasants turning to a life of crime or the crazy antics of nobility, and something that has even less to do with giant medieval robots with rocket skates. Let's talk about hoods. On its surface, a hood is a very simple article of clothing. It's just a flexible bit of headgear that covers the head and maybe the neck and shoulders and sometimes the face. Ostensibly, it's worn to protect one's head from the elements, but over the years, it has also been worn for fashion, for ceremonial purposes, and even to conceal one's identity. Hoods can be a part of another piece of clothing, like a hooded jacket, a hooded sweatshirt, or a hooded cloak or cape. But they can also be a separate item. In medieval Europe, one of the most popular hooded items was the chaperone, which was a short cape with a hood meant to protect your vulnerable head bits from the weather when you went traveling. And that's why, today, a chaperone is someone who protects a vulnerable lady when she goes traveling. Eventually, chaperones evolved into the variety of large medieval hats worn for fashion and protection, such as that English flat cap we mentioned, which is why the French call hats chapeaux. Also, hat and hood are derived from the same word, a Germanic word, hut. And actually, this hood story will also help explain why half the words in jolly old English come from French, which comes from Latin, and half from German, which came from Barbarian. But we'll get there. Hoods were also used for fashion and ceremonial purposes. Basically, the idea is the same as a headdress, which is another type of hood. Priests and scholars wore hoods to identify them and to show their station. Women wore a variety of fashion coverings, like the snood, a simple knitted thing that gathered up their hair and could be adorned with accessories. And for a while, hoods were all the rage. And then they fell out of fashion in the 14th and 15th century when a city in Italy, Milan, started exporting all sorts of sumptuous head coverings that weren't just loose floppy bits of cloth, but were made of various materials that would keep their interesting shapes. And the sellers of such goods in London became known as Milaners. Or later, milliners. If it seems like we're being pretty vague about the history of hoods and hats, that's because we are. Hoods and headdresses and hats and caps are all cut from the same cloth, if you'll forgive the pun. And they've been coming into and out of use in fashion since a bunch of upright monkeys started wearing the skins of their food. Although there have been various forms of headdress and floppy loose caps and crowns and wreaths over the years, in the Western world, it wasn't until around the 14th and 15th century that hats really supplanted hoods as the materials and techniques required to make hats were developed and discovered. So, why are we making such a big deal about hoods? Of all the clothing items we could cover, why one with such a vague and simple history? Well, first, because most fantasy role-playing games we grew up with would not exist without the hooded stranger to speed us along our quest. But second, because we were recently reminded of a rocket-skating medieval Japanese combat robot that we absolutely couldn't make any sense of back in our early college days, who has absolutely nothing to do with hoods. 
but he really seemed like he should. Let's talk about the other meaning of the word hood and the word hoodlum. A hood is a gangster, a thug, a criminal. And you'd think that's because criminals wore hoods to conceal their identities, right? The word hoodlum probably grew out of that sense of the word hood, right? Like it comes from hood and some German word loom, which means to hide or sneak. Sounds good, right? I mean, that's what we always assumed here at the Word of the Week. Well, no. Hoodlum doesn't come from hood. Hood, as in a criminal, comes from hoodlum. And hoodlum comes from... Well, eh, nobody really knows for sure. But hoods, criminals, have nothing to do with hoods, head coverings. The two words just happen to be spelled and pronounced exactly the same. How do we know that? Because we know the first time the word hoodlum was used. And that was in 1866, in San Francisco, California. Here's the story. On December 13, 1866, the Harbor Police in San Francisco arrested several boys ranging in age from 10 to 16. Their names were William Sullivan, William Fradiger, Christopher J. Conley, John Hamilton, and John Hudson. They were members of a group that had been committing numerous acts of petty thievery in the area, and the group had gotten a bit of a reputation. They'd been at the thievery thing for several years, and they would continue to escalate their crimes after their arrest in 1866 until, finally, one member of the gang, James Butt Riley, Yes, but was really his nickname. Seized control of the gang from William Billy Goat McGrath and then shot an innocent man named James Jordan. That was in 1871. And from then on, Butt Riley led his gang on a spree of attacks and burglaries until his capture in 1872. And he would have served 16 years in prison if the prison hadn't caught fire in 1876 and had Butt not helped rescue prisoners and fight the fire. To be clear, Jordan didn't die, he survived the attack, and Butt never did actually kill anybody. That's why he only got 16 years. The thing is, that group, of which several members were arrested in 1866, was a bona fide street gang. And they had a name. They were the Hoodlum Gang. And James Riley was king of the hoodlums. But we like calling him Butt better. Because we may be linguophiles, but we're also gamers. That means we can't pass up some puerile humor now and again. But, but, but. <laughs> oh, please remember to like and review this podcast on your platform of choice. Remember to note how classy we are. Anyway, all the newspapers carried the story of the Hoodlum Gang's exploits, starting with their arrest in 1866 and ending with the commutation of Butt Riley's sentence in 1876 after the prison fire. And the word hoodlum just kind of stuck. Other criminals were compared to the hoodlums and other stories. And that spread across the United States and then beyond, until the word hoodlum meant thug or criminal. And in the criminal heyday of the 1920s Prohibition era in the USA, it became the word for gangster or mobster. Where did the word come from? Well, there are lots of theories. And believe it or not, a lot of people have written about this. The best theory, which is far more well-researched than you'd expect for a story like this, is that they were named by their fence. 
1866, those boys who got arrested managed to avoid a long sentence because they were willing to testify against their fence, the guy who sold their stolen goods and paid them for their thievery. His name was Lazarus Moses, a German Jew living in the area. And by some accounts, he had named the gang when it got its start. And he got the name from a particular dialect of German he spoke, Swabane. That dialect comes from Swabia, or Schwaben, a region of southwest Germany on the Swiss border. And as such, the dialect of German they speak has a bit of a Swiss character to it. And there's this word, Hudelum, which means sloppy or disorderly. And it comes from the word Hadel, which means a cleaning rag. So the German fence named them the Sloppy Gang in his native dialect, and thus gangsters are hoodlums. Funny how that works out, huh? Speaking of criminals with unclear identities who have nothing to do with the word hood, let's talk about one of the most famous criminals of all, Robin of Loxley, a.k.a. Robin Hood and his band of merry men. And why England has so much German and French in it, and why Robin Hood has nothing to do with hoods or hoodlums and everything you know about him is a lie. Now we all know the story, right? There's this English aristocrat who supported the good king of England, Richard I. And this guy, Robin, even went off to fight in the Crusades under Richard's command. But when everyone started coming home from the Crusades, Richard was delayed and his brother John had taken control of the country. He was taxing everyone. Robin lost all his stuff. There's some robbery, a girl, and then a tournament. Robert enters in disguise. He's revealed, humiliates John and his sheriff. And then, just before it can all go wrong, King Richard is back and takes the throne. That's the story, right? The one you've seen cartoon foxes and Errol Flynn and Kevin Costner and Carrie Elwes and Daffy Duck and Captain Picard all play out, right? Nope. Sorry, you're thinking of Ivanhoe. No, seriously. Ivanhoe was a book written by Sir Walter Scott in 1819. It's set in 12th century England, and the important thing about it is that it's a romantic story. We've talked about the romantic era of art and culture before several times. Basically, that's when everyone looked around at how miserable things were becoming and started to imagine how much better life used to be in the medieval period. Sure, you had to ignore the plagues and feudalism and constant warfare and the fact that people lived in houses made of mud... See our episode on Waddle and Dobb for more on that. But if you just focused on the courtly love and the heroic knights with their pure religious virtue, it sure was nice. And Ivanhoe was one of the first novels of the romantic revival of the 1800s. Ivanhoe was the story of a nobleman, Wilfred of Ivanhoe, who was disinherited by his father, who wouldn't have a no-good, red-blooded Anglo-Saxon son of his supporting a filthy Norman king like Richard. See, at the time, there was a bit of bad blood in the nobility of England. Feudalism had recently been introduced by a bunch of invaders called the Normans, who, led by William the Conqueror, had conquered England. Technically, though, William wasn't called the Conqueror until after 1066 CE, when he actually conquered England. Before that, he was called William the Bastard, because his daddy hadn't been married to his mommy. Now, at the time, 
England had finally managed to get a lot of itself unified thanks to another bunch of foreigners who had invaded it years before. Those two peoples were the Angles and the Saxons. But that's okay, because England was a mess before that. After the Romans retreated from Britain, they left it as basically a fractured mess with all sorts of warring tribes. The Angles and Saxons showed up and managed to get the tribes under their control. Hence, England. Land of the Angles. Meanwhile, across the water, there was this region in northern France that had been settled by a family of northerners. Well, northerner is apparently a little long and hard to spell. So let's say a family of Norsemen. But with Rome having fallen apart, the Franks were taking control of most of Central Europe, and this family made nice with the Frankish kingdom. And so, they were granted a lot of land right on the northern edge of what we now call France, and as a result, their culture, over many years, became a peculiar mix of Proto-French, Germanic, and Norse. And we called them the Normans. You know the story from here. The Normans, led by Billy the Bastard, decide with the blessing of the Frankish king, a.k.a. the Holy Roman Emperor, to set sail for jolly old England and conquer it so he can have a better nickname than the Bastard. And they set up that whole feudalism thing of peasants pledging fealty to lords, pledging fealty to the king. The issue was that the Normans mostly let the Anglo-Saxon lords keep their lands and holdings. So you had a Norman king demanding fealty from Anglo-Saxon lords. And that chafed. And that was the central conflict in Ivanhoe. Ivanhoe was loyal to the Norman king. His dad didn't approve, and so he was disinherited. Richard recognized Ivanhoe's lordship, but technically, without Richard, Ivanhoe didn't have a lordship. Meanwhile, John, Richard's brother, wanted to rule England for himself. But he was just a caretaker, and he'd need to raise a lot of support to hold the throne once Richard came back. And since John was a Norman and didn't think much of the Anglo-Saxons, he taxed the heck out of them to raise the funds for his takeover bid. Meanwhile, Ivanhoe's father was planning to forge a marriage between this girl Rowena and the descendants of the last Anglo-Saxon king. So there's Ivanhoe. Penniless and caught between his dad's plot to restore the Anglo-Saxons and a pretender Norman king. He enters a tournament in disguise to win some money. He's helped by a mysterious knight and a master archer falls in love with Rowena, gets captured, tried, and then, it turns out, the mysterious knight was King Richard in disguise. He made it back from the Crusades. Hurrah! What does any of this have to do with Robin Hood? Well, first, you can see how elements of this story got conflated with the story of Robin Hood. And second, that master archer in the story was Robin of Loxley. Robin Hood who was one of Ivanhoe's merry men in the end. See, Robin Hood's story has changed a lot over the many years it has been around, and it has gradually been romanticized, so no two historians agree on how the story started and how it changed. We do know that Robin and his friend John have been mentioned in ballads as far back as the 1100s, but the earliest stories were just about them having archery contests on the roof of a local monastery, and his name was Robin Hood in some of them. Hence, Robin Hood. Nothing to do with hoodlums or hoods or disguises. Likely, Robin of Loxley in Nottinghamshire was a real nobleman, and he might really have turned to stealing from the rich. But he was stealing his own stuff as an Anglo-Saxon noble, which he felt was being unfairly taken by a false Norman tyrant king. 
and he was only giving it to the poor in the sense that under feudalism, it was stuff the poor had paid to Robin in the first place, as his serfs. And that brings us around to ancient Japanese robots on rocket skates. Seriously. Way, way back in 1991, we happened to play a very strange game for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System called The Legend of the Mystical Ninja. It was a wacky adventure game in which the main character, Goemon, and his friend Mr. Yang traveled around a colorful, anachronistic fantasy medieval Japan having adventures. As far as we know, we're the only ones who played it. Or the sequel some six years later on the Nintendo 64 console, which seems like a perfectly normal, wacky, colorful, anachronistic fantasy medieval Japanese adventure, until Goemon summons a giant wooden medieval robot samurai thing that he can pilot. Its name was Impact. It had its own theme song and everything. It was great, but weird. For a while, we thought we had imagined the whole thing in a fever dream. But then we discovered that this wacky series of games had been part of a 20-year series of dozens of games and spin-offs that never made it to the States. And that's because Konami, the publisher, didn't think anyone would appreciate it in the United States. Because it was actually basically the Disney-fied, cartoonified version of Japanese Robin Hood. And we really mean that. Ishikawa Goemon was a 16th century Japanese something. See, no one is quite sure what he was. He's first mentioned in historical records in 1642, and he was basically just a thief. And no two historians agree on who he really was. But over the years, various stories and legends grew up around him. Legends call him a noble thief, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. They say he formed a band of peasant outlaws to help him fight the warlords of his day. They even say he tried to assassinate Nobunaga the Conqueror. It was not a bastard, in case you were wondering. And Goemon became a romanticized hero who's appeared in all sorts of Japanese art, media, and popular culture. All of which just underscores the power of a hood to conceal one identity. You can never be sure what's under the hood. You can't even trust the word hood. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 